Welcome to our Founders Lecture Series. In 1982, Inabara began classes in Bengal with just 86 students and 11 staff. Fast forward 40 years and the school has experienced incredible change and growth, welcoming almost 1,200 students and more than 150 staff each day. This series honours a small group of pioneers whose vision led to what Inabara has become today. And this year, we explore the theme of art, beauty, and the transcendent. In these live recordings, you'll hear a range of special guests, as well as Inabara's principal, Dr. James Peach. We hope you enjoy. Well, welcome everyone to the third of our Founders Lectures and our final lecture for this year. It's uh, now my pleasure to welcome the Reverend Dr. Michael Jensen to share with us this evening, and I hope to engage us in a conversation around the broad topic of hope as a theme in art today. And many of you will know Michael Jensen. He's a regular pub- public commentator on a range of different issues, having appeared on television, and radio, written for websites on issues where faith and our culture intersect. He's written many books and he co-hosts a podcast called With All Due Respect. And unfortunately, I know I will mispronounce the name of the person you co-host with, so he co-hosts that podcast. <laughs> Currently, Michael is the Senior Minister at St. Mark's Anglican Church, Darling Point. Please join me in welcoming the Reverend Dr. Michael Jensen. Thank you for having me, James, and thank you for praying so well, Brett. (laughs) And good to meet up with you again and to meet a number of familiar faces, including uh, David, who I uh, taught with back at Sydney Grammar School in the the 1950s, it seems, back in the 1990s. So uh, lovely to be here and an honour to give this, uh, this third lecture. But before I begin, uh, I don't want to be overdramatic by this, but I do want to issue somewhat of a trigger warning in that there is some material and some images that are a little bit confronting tonight. So uh, just to kind of get that out there and uh, no doubt uh, also that will really pique your interest, of course. But just to say that we're dealing with some, some serious and confronting material in looking at the world which many claim is God forsaken. In 1994, there was a genocide in Rwanda in which more than 500,000 members of the Tutsi minority group were butchered by Hutu armed militias with rifles and machetes. This was a particularly brutal episode in a century full of brutal episodes. Now, by 1995, the boot was on the other foot. The Tutsi-dominated Rwandan patriotic army had been victorious over the Hutus. As a result, many ethnic Hutus, fearing reprisals, had become displaced persons and had gathered in large refugee camps under the supervision of United Nations forces. One of these camps, holding more than 80,000 people, was at a place called Kabiho, where a small group of Australian soldiers were serving in a peacekeeping role. With them was an artist and filmmaker by the name of George Gittos. On the 22nd of April, 1995, soldiers of the Rwandan Patriotic Army entered the camp at Kabiho, seeking to hunt out people who they thought had committed the 1994 genocide. Pretty soon, however, the situation became an indiscriminate slaughter by the familiar weapons, rifle and machete. As many as 8,000 people died that day, men, women and children. The Australian soldiers could only watch and supply medical help where they could. Not only were they vastly outnumbered, but their rules of engagement did not permit them to intervene. Well, what of the artist? Gittos later said in an interview, 
Thousands of people were slaughtered before my eyes with machetes. Many of the victims believed that demons had taken control of the killers, so there was a feeling of the supernatural and hyper-real, which could not be captured by a camera. It was the feeling of, a pl- of the place. So what was the artist to do with this hellish scene? Gittos went on to say, only drawing and painting could go into this emotive region. When I sit down and draw someone who has been badly injured, I'm also helping them with their wounds and giving them psychological comfort. So they tell me their stories. I try to write the stories as beautifully as possible because they expect me to become their advocate. Many of these stories and drawings were done with people in the last moments of their lives. I find myself stretching myself to the limit of my abilities to be a true witness to what I have have seen and feel it a huge responsibility to get the combined media out to the world and to reach the largest audience possible. It's intriguing to hear Gittos reflect on his vocation as an artist and as a human being amidst such savage butchery. At one level, he is aware that he is not just there as an aid worker to provide medical assistance. He is a witness, indeed a specially commissioned witness. And so we hear his wrestle with how to be a true witness to what he is seeing. Gittos did take photographs at the time, but as he says, the emotive regions, the demonically terrifying atmosphere that he noticed could not be replicated by anything better than drawing and painting. To tell the truth about a massacre, to be a true witness, he needed his art. We might say that an artistic representation will always misrepresent or distort reality, that it is necessarily only one person's impression of the scene. But the total truth of the scene could not simply be told through bare facts. It needed the artist and his art. To witness the truth needed not simply objectivity, but subjectivity as well. It was not simply an event, but an experience. Gittos was also conscious of writing the stories of the wounded and dying as beautifully as possible. As beautifully as possible. This to me is an extraordinary statement. Can the artist find beauty amidst horror? In fact, though Gittos argues that he's motivated by comfort of the witnesses, of the victims, I should say, is he not flirting with a real danger here in that by making art from brutality, he may beautify, if not beatify, the horrific? Now, I want to show you one of Gittos' paintings that he later developed from his drawings on that awful day, a painting called Eyewitness for Castle. The painting depicts a young woman who has been ripped apart by a machete attack. Like many of the victims of Cabijo, she's been attacked in the face and bears a deep gash in her cheek. She has other wounds from which blood sprays, and there is what looks like a spear sticking into her side. The rest of her body has only a barely human form to it. The protrusions of her body at the front might be breasts or limbs. We can't tell. There is a suggestion of rape, in the phallic brushstrokes above her and near her abdomen. She looks up at us from the picture, neither pleading nor screaming as we might expect, but with a gaze of both despair and loneliness, lostness, I would say. Her terribly disfigured face is mirrored above her, as if perhaps life is on the point of leaving her body. Behind her, with her still gaze looking at us, the world is in chaos, in turmoil, We can see perhaps behind her fire raging, blood flowing and bullets flying. There is nothing here resembling the natural world. 
It is a picture, I'm sure you will agree, that is both hideous and beautiful at once. It's hard to look at. On what lounge room wall could it ever hang? In what chapel could it ever be placed? On what t-shirt could it ever be printed? If the painting is a true witness, it's a witness to something unbearable. It presents a truth we do not want to face every day. In fact, it presents a face we do not want to face. And yet, because Gittos has found a a beauty here in in an ironic mode, he's invited us to gaze at the results of human barbarity. Rather than mediating some eternal and transcendent reality, this is a piece of anti-transcendent art. Because in it, we are confronted with the brutality and violence of an actual, datable and locatable event in human history. The woman gazes out at us with a terrible aloneness. That is one of the strange things about this painting, for me. As we face her, we recognize her face, her expression as one of complete abandonment. And we catch a sense of it so that we feel together with her in her loneliness. What is an artist doing in such a godforsaken place? What kind of art could be made from such an experience? By simply being a true witness to the horrors of Cabijo, eyewitness for Castle is saying something about the world and the place of art in it. We're not invited to look through this image to some higher reality. The experience of encountering this picture is not meant to send us into some religious ecstasy. How could it? Angels do not hover over this stricken woman. The single point of connection is the humanity we share with the stricken face whose gaze we cannot avoid. And that leads me to what I'm trying to accomplish in this lecture. My purpose is to ask, can art speak of hope in a God-forsaken world? After the horrors of the 20th century, artists of many kinds have borne witness to the fact that cabijos have occurred and continue to occur in human history. We often use the term God-forsakenness to describe events like these. And it's not simply a flippant turn of phrase when we do, since part of seeing these events as they really are is deliberately avoiding some theological rationale for them. Looking into the face of profound suffering, we cannot but ask, why was God not here? We cannot help but feel the absence of God and the absence of his goodness. Now, I do want to work my way towards a positive answer to my set question, but that answer cannot be easily won or tritely given. One answer to the question of whether art can speak of hope in a God-forsaken world is no. No, it must not. And indeed, if an artist is to be honest, it cannot. Being a true witness to the unspeakable atrocities of war, rape, genocide, and more means depicting human brutality and suffering in its profoundest depths for what it is. It means subverting the kind of art that glorifies or justifies or even just attempts to explain suffering. It means throwing into question the way in which works of art have been thought of as pointing to the transcendent. It means demanding that we look at and not through the anguish of those who are victims and the evil of those who perpetrate such atrocities. Now, human art making has an ancient connection with religion going back even to prehistory. The power of art to speak of life, death, and meaning overlaps with the religious sense in human beings. In fact, we might say that the separation of the two, religion and art, is a relatively recent phenomenon in the history of humankind. 
Not that this is a particularly radical thing to say, since the modern West is an outlier in its idea of the secular. Once upon a time, and it's still the case in many parts of the world, nothing was separated from God or the gods, since in the pre-enlightenment view of the world, everything was permeated by sacredness and transcendence. You could say, with not too much exaggeration, that there was, before the modern era, no non-religious art. But you could also say that of politics, too. It was all bound up with the transcendent. To put it in theological language, nature was held to point to grace. Indeed, nature was often held to be an analogy for grace, bursting with divine presence. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has mapped out this terrain in his magisterial book called The Secular Age. Taylor uses the phrase, the imminent frame, the imminent frame, to describe the conditions of belief and believing which now dominate in the West, the culture in which we live. Time is now chiefly measured in clocks and by calendars rather than by epochs. Instead of the natural and the supernatural being intertwined, the natural being permeated with the supernatural, we see the transcendent as separate from the imminent, if we believe in the transcendent at all. What does this mean? It means, again, using Taylor's words, that the world has for us become disenchanted. This is not necessarily a decision for atheism as such, but for atheism as a working hypothesis in politics and history and in science. The operations of the world have to be explained in material terms within the realm of cause and effect. Pray for healing, perhaps, but do take your medicine. Governments ruled by rights, given them from the people, not by God. Providence may indeed control history, but its workings are mysterious to us. We cannot read over God's shoulder. All we have is the evidence that our senses put together. What does this mean for art? Well, this is a slightly more complicated matter since art is the very business of enchantment, you might say. Artists like to use religious words like inspiration and presence to describe what they produce. They still do. The Romantic movement of the first part of the 19th century was in large part an attempt to re-enchant the world without the need for a religious revelation or an institutional church, though it influenced more conventionally religious, conventionally religious art as well. Nature was once more depicted as a portal to the sublime, however vaguely that might be defined. Humanity and human achievement were exalted. Even paintings of war scenes And there were some truly awful wars in the 19th century. This is a painting of the Crimean War. You wouldn't know about the mass death that occurred from this picture of a wonderful cavalry charge. They tend to be epic and heroic, radiant with glory. And for a poetic example, we might think of Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death, rode the six, you know, you know, that kind of glorious stuff for a poetic example. Perhaps only with the war photographs of amputated limbs, the dead on the battlefield and the shattered survivors was there any glimpse of the sheer futility of war. But the art of the 20th century could not ignore first the trenches of the First World War and then the gas chambers of the Holocaust. It's not as if art before then did not know suffering and pain, far from it. But suffering was either punitive, as in the hellish scenes of Hieronymus Bosch in the Middle Ages, or redemptive. For example, in tragic drama, suffering, it's certainly, we see a lot of suffering and death, but it's cathartic. It has meaning. It fit in with a view of divine providence, or it fits in with it. We might term it the art of presence, even when there is suffering depicted. But the suffering of the Western Front, and then of the Holocaust, 
seemed both pointless and on such a huge scale as to be uninterpretable for the poets of the Great War, at least those who were actually on the battlefield rather than imagining it from afar. There was no providence that could explain the disaster that they had witnessed. Perhaps the greatest of them, or at least my favourite, so therefore the greatest, Wilfred Owen wrote in his poem, Anthem for Doomed Youth, What passing bells for those who die as cattle, only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifles, rapid rattle, can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers, nor bells, nor any voice of mourning, save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. For Owen, who himself died on the battlefield, there is no gloss that can make the deaths of young soldiers shine with a roseate glow. There is no comfort for the grieving. He subverts the imagery of a traditional Anglican funeral service by making the battlefield itself a kind of perverse church, complete with choirs of wailing shells rather than boy trebles, and the bell toll of mourning becomes the anger of the guns. The bottom line is, these men who may have once been cherub-faced choir boys back in England die now not as human beings, but as cattle. This is not the art of presence, but rather the art of absence. Owen's poem is deliberately an act of disenchantment, but it's not simply the disenchantment of the early modern era, which was born of a practical separation of theological and secular patterns of thinking. This is not simply the victory of rational as opposed to superstitious thinking. This is a more bitter thing. There is no justification or validation for the slaughter. He offers none because there is none. The anger of the poem is palpable, and it is not just an anger against the government or the system. It's more than that. There is no transcendence, only imminence. There is only presence, only absence. This is the force of the only in Anthem for Doomed Youth. God has surely abandoned the world, since if we are to be true witnesses to the world, then we cannot be satisfied with placing trenches and gas chambers within some kind of divine plan. To be true witnesses, artists like Owen and Gittos must surely show the true horror of what humanity has done and suffered, rather than explain it. You cannot look through a scene like that, you must look at it. Art, then, has taken on a new role in the service of humankind. Not that artists fail now to depict beauty or the erotic or joy, or cannot do so authentically. Beauty and love and joy are still valid. But to be a true witness to the full range of human experience, art has needed to break the spell that it cast. It cannot simply re-enchant the world. Art must speak of the God-forsaken, not always, and not all art, but the God-forsaken dimension of human experience cannot and has not been ignored in artistic work. We've seen a couple of examples in the work of Gittos and Owen, but we could add to that the work of women artists and poets on the subject of violence against women. Or to take an example from a more modern conflict, um, this poem by Maram al-Mazri, who writes in her poem entitled Syria. Syria for me is a bleeding wound. It is my mother on her deathbed. It is my child with her throat cut. It is my nightmare and my hope. It is my insomnia and my waking. Now, all of this is uncomfortable territory for a theologian. 
The art of presence, which depicts nature as an analogy of grace, filled with transcendence, seems more like my home territory, my home ground. In Acts 17, Paul quotes the Greek poets approvingly when they say, God is not far from any, every one of us. Yes, that's right. He's present as nature teaches us, but unknown. The art of presence acts as an altar to the invisible God. All that remains for us is to speak the name Jesus, surely. But what are we to make of the art of absence? Indeed, some artists of the God-forsaken have been quite definite in their claim that in depicting such a world, they are making any speech about God impossible. You get this sense in Owen, if not in Gitto's, and certainly in the absurdist drama of Samuel Beckett, who does not directly depict scenes of brutality, but surely commentates always on the horrors of the 20th century. Well, may we wait for God or Godo, but will he ever appear? Beckett seems to think not. To chart a a way forward, though, I will enlist the help of Martin Luther, the great German theologian of the Reformation in the 16th century. And what Luther helps us to see is that the art of absence, in fact, does theologians a great favor. To see how this is so, we need to understand what Luther meant by speaking of Deus absconditus, the hiddenness of God the hiddenness of God, Deus Absconditus. Now, it's worth knowing that Luther was not a man of half measures. In fact, I think there's an, a Luther insult generator somewhere on the internet. You can go if you're interested in finding some Luther insults. What he found as he read the pages of scripture, and in particular Paul's epistles, was a radical critique of human pride. For Luther, human beings could only be justified by faith in the cross of Jesus Christ, which meant leaving aside any faith in one's own good works. To really receive the gospel, you had to reckon with your own deep unworthiness and to be driven empty-handed to the cross in complete dependence upon the mercy of God. As Luther once said, sinners are beautiful because they are loved. They are not loved because they are beautiful. Sinners are beautiful because they are loved, not loved because they are beautiful. On 26th of April, 1518, Luther traveled to what was essentially a conference for his order of monks, the Augustinian order in Heidelberg in southwestern Germany, right the other side of Germany from where he lived in Wittenberg in the east. And there he presented a series of theses for debate, which became known as the Heidelberg Disputation, not unlike the 95 theses that he had posted on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg the previous October. Now, two of the statements there really stand out. Thesis 19 and 20. He said, He is not worth calling a theologian who seeks to interpret the invisible things of God on the basis of the things that have been created. That's number 19. Number 20. But he is, the one is worth calling a theologian who understands the visible and hinder parts of God to mean the passion and the cross. And what did he mean by these strange statements? Now, Luther's theology is essentially a theology of the cross as the sole authentic place in which human beings may know God. On the cross of Christ, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? God was revealed, but also paradoxically hidden. As Luther put it in a sermon delivered in February 1517, man hides what is his own in order to conceal it. But God conceals what is his in order to reveal it. Luther alludes to illustrate this to the story of Moses 
in Exodus chapter 33, who is only allowed to see God's back. Remember that story? Moses is uh, kind of wants to see God. God says, you can't see my face. You can only see kind of me as I passed by. Uh, in Luther's language, the hinder parts of God, the, the backside of God. Don't get that in the wrong sense. As God passed by with Moses hidden in the rock. We don't have, the message here is we don't have a direct vision, can't have in the state we're in, a direct vision of the face of God, for that would simply overpower and destroy us as sinful human creatures. Rather, God comes to us concealed or veiled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and in particular, in the cross of Jesus. Luther's picking up, in particular, Paul's theology of the cross from 1 Corinthians 1 to 3, where Paul speaks about the power and wisdom of God revealed in the weakness and foolishness of the cross. The Luther scholar, Alistair McGrath, summarizes Luther's theology of the cross in five points. He says, first of all, the theology of the cross is opposed to a theology of speculative reasoning about God. It's a a theology not of us trying to figure out God, but of God revealing himself. That's the point of thesis 19 back there, the uh, thesis 19, and has relevance for our discussion of art, speculating about the creation whether by reason, morality, or through art, does not reveal the true God to us. We need to turn to the cross where God truly has revealed himself and not take up false trails. Secondly, this revelation, the way God reveals himself, is indirect and concealed. In John chapter 1, of course, we hear that uh, the word was made flesh and tented amongst us, kind of slummed it with us. His glory veiled, we might say, is paradoxically then this revelation, a concealed revelation. Well, how does that make sense? When we look at the cross of Christ and the distended and pain-wracked body there, despised and rejected, we do not see something we recognize as God. If we were expecting a direct revelation of the face of God there, we would walk away dismayed and disappointed as many people do. What we see is the hinder parts of God, a revelation that's only visible to the eyes of faith. Luther says, God is not to be found except in sufferings and in the cross. And we'll come back to the eye of faith. But the third point is that the cross of Christ shatters human illusions concerning the capacity of human reason to discern God whether by aesthetic feelings, by rational deduction, or moral activity. The fourth point is the knowledge of the hidden God, that this knowledge of the hidden God is a matter of faith only. And that faith is faith in Christ, the crucified one. To demonstrate this, Luther, I should say, gives a biblical example from John chapter 14, where Philip asks Jesus to show him the Father. Show me the Father. It's just after he says, uh, I'm going to the Father's you know, the Father's house, many rooms, I'm going to prepare a place to you. Uh, now, this is exactly, for Luther, the human problem, the desire to know God apart from Christ. Show us the Father, he says. Jesus' reply is that there is no knowledge of God apart from Jesus. Whoever has seen me, he says, has seen the Father. And indeed, there is no way to the Father but by me. Lastly, for Luther, God is known precisely in suffering, primarily that of Christ, but also in the afflictions of his followers. God is actively present in the suffering and temptation, in suffering and in temptation to bring human beings to himself. In order that God may do his work of forgiving the sinner, they have to recognize that they are a sinner. They must be humbled before they are justified. 
Luther talked about this work of humbling us as being the alien or strange work of God, which prepares the ground for the proper work of God. I think a number of us will know this in our experience, that God has humbled us in order to justify us, in order to bring us to the cross, to empty us of our pride. And that may hurt that work. Human morality, in fact, might be outraged by this, and human wisdom can't fathom it. But the theology of the cross doesn't rationalize suffering or justify it, but shows how God reveals himself even in the moment of his apparently greatest absence. He does his alien work there. Luther does not reject completely the idea of a natural knowledge of God, but this knowledge is extremely limited. If a theology were to be based on it, it would lead inevitably to idolatry. For a person to have true knowledge of God, our preconceptions about God have to be destroyed by the cross, where the hidden God is truly revealed. God is hidden in his revelation. The cross appears as the wrath of God, a curse indeed. Yet by faith, we see that God's mercy is revealed precisely in this wrath. God's work is then quite paradoxical. McGrath puts it this way. He says, God's strength lies hidden under apparent weakness, his wisdom under apparent folly, his opus proprium, sorry for the Latin, proper work under his opus alienum, his alien work, the future glory of the Christian under his present sufferings. You can feel these themes shot through the New Testament all the way through the Apostle Paul's work. You think of two Corinthians just for one example. We should not be slow to add that Luther's theology of the cross was something he certainly had an opportunity to carry with him with the lived experience of persecution and fear and abandonment. In the years when he was developing this very theology, the theology of the hiddenness of God, he was well aware of the possibility, indeed the likelihood of his own impending suffering at the hands of the authorities. As a condemned heretic, the sentence that was due to him was burning, as we know. His very life was at stake. Faith in the God revealed in the cross of Christ has to cling to nothing else. Just like Gittos and the other artists of absence, Luther invites us to look at and not through the cross. Precisely there, God is at work. This is how he works, surprisingly. More than that, God is not simply at work there. God is there in Christ. God has become man and entered even into the God-forsakenness of a violent human death to bear in himself the divine wrath. We look at the cross and we are horrified and repelled. As Isaiah says, the suffering servant had no beauty, had no human form that we would recognize him. But to the eyes of faith, this is power and wisdom and the beauty of God himself. We see there the consequences of the human rebellion against God, the devastating consequences, and also the extent of the divine love. Recall that Luther once said, sinners are beautiful because they are loved. They are not loved because they are beautiful. This insight into the love of God explains why the depiction of the contorted body of Jesus Christ was at the center of the art of Christianity for a thousand years. And indeed, a focus for religious devotion and architecture. Why is the cross in any sense held to be beautiful? How could this depiction of a rejected and dying man, practically a corpse, bleeding, wounded, generate such aesthetic admiration? It is because Jesus, in experiencing God-forsakenness for us, showed us at once the severity of God's wrath and the depths of God's love. 
More than this, as fully God and fully man, Jesus shows us that God has willingly experienced in a human body, humiliation, suffering, and death. That is, to the eyes of faith, truly beautiful. There is no better example of this aesthetics, the aesthetics of the cross, and one directly influenced by Luther's theology of the hiddenness of God, than we find in the great passions of J.S. Bach, the St. John and the St. Matthew. And recent scholars have actually found uh, Bach's library of Luther's works and his annotations. He clearly read them, wasn't just a curator of books as uh, I am, um, actually read them. But Luther lived in an age in which the art and literature of the Renaissance was exulting in the glory and the beauty of humankind. Our minds readily turn to Michelangelo's David or the glorious fleshiness of the Sistine Chapel roof. One of Luther's great sparring partners, Erasmus of Rotterdam, the great scholar of his age, felt that Luther was altogether too harsh on human beings who retained an inherent goodness even as they sinned, said Erasmus. Luther's theology of God's hiddenness radically undercuts that pride by placing the cross next to the statue of David. Luther's theology was not developed alongside the art of absence, but surprisingly prepares the ground for it. I said earlier that the art of absence does the theologian a great favor in the light of Luther's theology of the hiddenness of God, who is most fully revealed precisely when he appears to be most absent. Art which does not hide the brutality and futility of much human experiences challenges at once our belief in God and our belief in humanity. It demolishes our towers of Babel and throws into question our assumptions that we can by moral or rational or indeed aesthetic means know God or goodness in any but the most basic sense. The art of absence is iconoclastic. It smashes our idols. If it proclaims the death of a false god or of a god who never existed in the first place, or if it seals off forever a path to God that exalts human pride, which can never reach in any case its promised destination, then a theologian can welcome it. A Christian can give a tick to it. It is doing us an important job. Viewed through the lens of Luther's theology, or as Luther would say, the eyes of faith, the art of absence can operate as the alien work of God. It crushes false hope. But if we know that God reveals himself on the cross, it can also be seen as hopeful. If that is where God chooses to reveal himself, not just in solidarity with the human experience of God forsakenness, but in order to overcome it, then we can take up the invitation of the art of absence to look into the jaws of hell itself and yet not utterly despair. As the 20th century German theologian Jürgen Moltmann said, when God becomes man in Jesus of Nazareth, he not only enters into the finitude of man, but in his death on the cross also enters into the situation of man's God forsakenness. There is no loneliness and no rejection which he has not taken to himself and assumed in the cross of Jesus. If the cross is the true sign of God's presence, then even Auschwitz cannot be the sign of his absence. The God who was crucified does not disdain such places. He is not indifferent to the plight of human beings and their rejection and suffering, but is found amongst them. And though I don't for a second think that here is some kind of justification for or answer to the question of why horrendous evils happen in human history, 
The claim of the New Testament is that God was not simply in Christ as a grieving but impotent bystander offering like some far-off president his thoughts and prayers. No, God was in Christ the crucified, says Paul, reconciling the world to himself. He was no bystander but a sufferer, a fellow sufferer who willingly endured the humiliation and pain of becoming a victim. The self-emptying of the Son of God who takes the form of a servant, we remember Philippians 2, goes far beyond tea and sympathy. It goes to the cross and there it cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Yes, in some unfathomable way, the living almighty God experiences abandonment and death. But the cross of Christ is God's power under the veil of weakness, a victory cloaked in defeat. The cross of Christ is only the beginning of God's work, which will be fulfilled in the resurrection of the dead and the consummation of all things. Thus, even as the art of absence is a true witness to the God-forsakenness of human experience, we could also say that it speaks of the hope that that experience is not final. And there's also a call, a call here. Those who know that God's loving presence in the suffering world is revealed on the cross cannot abandon the suffering. The good news of comfort and hope can be spoken in such places. We can still pray even there. If God himself could humble himself in this way, then we are surely called to echo him by our presence in places on the earth that others might call hell, in the hospice with the grieving, on the battlefield, in the dungeon. The faith that gives us eyes to see the cross of Christ as God's hidden presence also calls us to offer our own form of true witness to the love of God revealed in the death of Jesus Christ for the hurting and sin-scarred world. Two days after that awful day in 1995, George Gittos came across another scene in Cabijo. He wrote in his notebook, Two days ago, there were thousands of people standing and pleading for help. Now everything is flattened, bodies crumpled amidst rubbish, their few discarded possessions. This afternoon, as if walking through an invisible door, I came into a group who were calm, though bursts of machine gun fire surrounded them, continually getting closer with terrifying inevitability. They remained a solid congregation, bound together not by walls, but by prayer. A solitary preacher read to them from a ragged Bible. He was a tall man in a yellowish coat, sitting high on a sack of grain. He spoke in French with a thick dialect, his voice hoarse and broken. But I could recognize the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The sketch he drew of the scene later became this painting which won the Blake Religious Art Prize in 1995, although it seems kind of crass to mention that it won a prize, really. It's called simply The Preacher. Giddos has painted The Preacher with his arms spread wide and his head tilted in a pose that's reminiscent of a crucifixion scene. Together with his little congregation, he bears witness to the presence of God amidst a God-forsaken scene. And his ragged Bible also reminds us of the tattered and broken body of Jesus. Ragged maybe, but still very much a word from God, a promise in which to hope. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you so much for that, Michael. There's so much I really enjoyed about your presentation, but I have to say that the the part I enjoyed most was just your unpacking of those different pictures. You know, I look at artwork and I can see various things, I can feel various things, but I really found the way that you um, were able to make those artworks so much richer with meaning was was really really fantastic and i really thank you for that it was just that that concept of art as a true witness that the artist being a true witness to the terrible godforsaken world that we often see very very clearly particularly in the 20th century was very challenging and i i couldn't help but feel when i was looking at that first picture my question was how are we meant to react to this are we meant to react to this to say well, stuff happens. Or is the artist intentionally trying to, you know, garner some emotional response from us, which says, which screams out, this is not how it is meant to be. And there's something wrong with what is happening here. And there is hopefully, I use that word in the, you know, broader sense, hopefully a consummation or a, a bringing to right of these terrible things that we see. And I think you, you talked a a bit about that in terms of the, you know, the Christian idea of, you know, God actually bringing things together in the new creation at the end. I also wanted to maybe just present a challenge. I would challenge anyone here. We've, we've been thinking about the, the beauty of the, the cross. Has anyone here ever seen the cross in its, in its, in its horror? And, um, I, I just challenge you in that regard because I've never seen it. I've seen beautiful wooden crosses with no Jesus on them. I've seen statues of crucifixes with this sort of marble Jesus who's perfectly white. And even when I watch The Passion of the Christ, I know that it's still not the full horror of what happened on that day when the imminent and the transcendent are coming together in a way that challenges and overturns all of our understanding of how the world is and how it should be. So there's just so much that you've presented for us to think about. So thank, thanks again, Michael. We've got a little present to say thank you. Thank you very much. Um, okay. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Founders Lecture Series. For more information about Innerborough School and Community, visit www.innerborough.newsouthwales.edu.au. And hit follow on the Innerborough Podcast channel for a range of upcoming content.